Hi, it's Mike Morse. Welcome to Open Mic. We have another crazy case to talk about today. This one's out of Iowa. They have some backwards laws in Iowa that you're going to learn about. But we have the director of wrongful conviction of the entire state of Iowa, Erica Nichols Cook. And we have Jeff Wright, the Iowa State Public Defender, who are going to talk about what's happening in Iowa and about the Beeman case. One of the craziest cases. Seven people saw the dead person alive after the date that this person, this woman was allegedly killed and they still convicted the person. Lots of evidence wasn't found. Lots of evidence wasn't turned over. It's one of those crazy cases that needs to be overturned. You're not going to want to miss this episode of Open Mic. Stay tuned. You don't so you never know where this is going to go. Cocktail town somewhere. Yeah. Really? <laughs> I would have done just like I won't charge him with 12 felons. These cops pulled a gun up and said, Sir, put your hands up. One second. It could be I was coaching Joaquin Phoenix how to talk and walk like a doctor. Consider wow. a full Oh, hello. Oh. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my new podcast, Open Mic. Okay, well, thank you both for being here. And, and Eric, I'm going to start with you. As the director of the Wrongful Conviction Division in, in Iowa's Office of the State Public Defender, how serious is the problem of innocent people being locked up in not only Iowa, but in America, in your opinion? It's, it's an overwhelming, egregious problem. Uh, you know, we know that there are 2,700 exonerations since 1989 in in the world, but only 16 in Iowa. Mm -hmm. So we have so many uh, potential, you know, exonerations here. So many people waiting for help that uh, that we're trying to reach. There is a lack of transparency in Iowa. We're not entitled to investigative records uh, through an open records or FOIA process, and there is um, a lot, a lot we don't know. Sounds like Iowa is a little bit behind the times. And, you know, when I, when I, on open mic, we've talked to several people with, uh, who work with and are dealing with the conviction integrity units inside the prosecutor's office. You are inside the defender's office, which is run by Jeff Wright, who's also on, on our uh, podcast right now, which is completely opposite. And it doesn't make, uh, it, I don't really understand it because you guys are the defenders of these people. Of course, you're saying that they're wrongfully convicted. Of course, you think that they should be out. So what good does it do? Jeff, I'm going to direct that one to you. Well, one of the things that our office has been able to focus on is some of the cases that have uh, where the technology has changed. Uh, we've, we've worked a lot with uh, DNA cases where the DNA technology and the uh, the, the things that we can test has advanced so much over the course of the last several decades uh, that we can look at some of these older cases and and make a change where the defense itself uh, wouldn't have had access to that information uh, given a different technological uh, time. So the, so the difference now, guys, is you have a uh, a department inside the public defender's office who is specifically looking at post-conviction cases. And this started about 2015. What, what led to this division being broken out and, and started? Eric, I'll let you talk about that since you were around. I, that was prior to my time. There was a, a <laughs> lieutenant, our now lieutenant governor was the state public defender at that time. 
Yeah, Adam Gregg was the state public was the state public defender in 2015, and um, I had known Adam um, from our time at Drake uh, Law School, and I was doing innocence work in Illinois, and had um, had several experiences with a shaken baby case and arson case, and. Adam and I would talk once in a while about being the public defender, you know, the challenges that come with uh, the culture change, with getting public defenders to, um, you know, realize that evidence and techniques are changing, that they have to challenge things that maybe they didn't challenge, you know, 20 years ago. And so he created the division and I didn't join until 2016. Uh, but we kind of um, hit the ground running because Adam has secured a federal grant to pay for DNA testing and to look at uh, cases that had involved the, uh, moder you know, the microscopic hair comparisons. And so we, we hit the ground running with those cases. We found cases, we, we submitted things for testing. Unfortunately in Iowa, there wasn't um, a strong preservation law uh, until the 2000s. So a lot of times there isn't any evidence to test or it was lost in a flood. Iowa also has a lot of rivers that people may not realize um, if you think about the stereotype of Iowa. Or a fire sometimes, keep going. Uh, so the division started with that grant and uh, some clients um, might've started off, you know, we were looking at the hairs, but the hair really wasn't the piece of evidence that convicted them. And so we started expanding and looking at other requests for assistance with the Midwest Innocence Project. And so they were, they were our partner because they were already, they cover five states, they were already covering Iowa intake. And we have a lot of racial disparities in Iowa because um, the population is so diverse and so spread out in Iowa and our, Af our African-Americans, our minorities are more central and 99 counties. So 99 prosecutors making decisions on who to charge and what to charge. So we've uh, we've discovered a lot of um, really tragic um, injustices and cases and um, been building relationships the last few years with defense attorneys throughout the state. And you know, back the state public defense office itself is not that old in Iowa, because private attorneys were handling uh, your your murder cases even in the eight in the eighties. And so, a, a different level of representation, a different type of you know coordinated uh, response that you might see in bigger cities like yours or in Chicago was not happening necessarily here. Do you guys still have um, um, people, who, private attorneys, who can handle criminal cases? A court appointed system. Yeah, yeah we work on a hybrid system. I'm sorry, Erica. We work on a hybrid system where we have our state public defender's offices. We have 19 field offices spread throughout the state, including an appellate division. And then we have uh, contract attorneys that handle our conflict cases, our overflow cases. And those obviously are in all 99 counties. But we, so we still do have private attorneys who handle engine defense cases. Not every state. Jeff has a state-run public defender's office. Michigan does not have one. Um, I, I've asked several, you know, criminal defense attorneys why and, and that whole thing. How, how do you think that that is important to have a overseer of all the public defenders in the state, as opposed to make it ninety-nine different ones in ninety-nine different counties? I, I think it is if you uh, if it's utilized correctly and if it's used correctly, uh, it's an incredible tool to be able to have access. Uh, effectively, I get to uh, deal with the best criminal defense attorneys in the state on a daily basis. 
and the sharing of ideas that happens between those uh, attorneys because of the network that we have as a state-run office is incredible. Uh, the ideas that get exchanged and the, the methods of attacking uh, the new things that prosecutors are trying uh, is it's amazing to watch. And I think our state-run system uh, is highly effective. And we are able uh, now to share a lot of that type of information with our contract attorneys or our, our individual private attorneys as well and expand that network and just overall increase the status of criminal defense in Iowa. That's great. Tell me some of the recurring issues um, that you guys are seeing that have led so many innocent people going to prison. You mentioned there was less than 20 in, in Iowa, which is a shockingly low number. You know that there's hundreds, if not thousands more. But what are, you, what are the trends that you're seeing? A lot of misconduct as far as Brady violations, uh, withholding of evidence, uh, reports. Uh, Iowa is unique in the criminal defense world that we take depositions in criminal cases. I practiced in Illinois for years. You did not take depositions. No. Uh, so, you not know. Not either, just to give you a little more context. So, but when you're talking about Brady, you know, we have a lot of listeners who don't know what Brady violation means. And you mentioned something earlier in the podcast that that um, Iowa doesn't make the prosecutors give you exculpatory evidence. So I don't know how that jives with Brady. Uh, so why don't you just give me a quick legal lesson on that? Yeah. So Brady versus Maryland, 1963, United States Supreme Court says that prosecutors and basically law enforcement, you know, any they're, they have an obligation. They have a duty to turn over anything that is, exculpatory material that could help in the defense. And uh, if they don't do it, it's a, it's a violation of due process rights. How can you prepare your defense if you don't have access to the information that you need? And so Iowa's, um, they have these right to take depositions, but they don't have a right necessarily to get copies of the police reports. And so it's been a litigated um, over the years, you know, uh, is this a Brady violation? Do you have a right to the reports? Even today in trials that are happening, it's, you know, you don't necessarily have the right to have the underlying report in front of you. You have the right to ask questions, but how do you impeach that witness if you don't have the reports? So that's something that we're kind of um, constantly kind of evolving and it changes depending on which county you're in. Uh, sometimes the age, the attorney general's office has a um, area trials division. And so they will go to the small counties when there is a homicide, when there is a, you know, a serious crime and help that local prosecutor. And they can be very open. Oh, well, here's this, here's that. But you don't necessarily have the court overseeing that. And uh, you don't know what you don't have. <laughs> and that's the, that's the inherent problem. It's a and it, it, that's a fascinating process. So just for listeners and viewers, Depositions in criminal cases I've never heard of. Um, and so, you know, so you that means you get to sit down with a, a police officer, detective, investigator and say, are there any, is there any exculpatory evidence whatsoever? Mm -hmm. And based upon their truth and veracity, you get what you get. Whether or not that, whether or not you have the right cop in the seat, whether or not you have the right investigator in the seat, I'm just making this up as I'm thinking, right? You might not have the right person. I mean, how many is am I am I reading this right? This sounds yeah. very strange. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely been an adjustment for me. And uh, it causes some problems, especially in our wrongful convictions, because, you know, most wrongful convictions were cases that were what the cops would call heaters, right? They were the ones that were in the news. They were um, really egregious or, you know, uh, you know, really scary for the public. And so you've got a lot of opportunity for tunnel vision, for officers to get focused on somebody right away, for the prosecutors to ignore alternate suspects and, um, you know, go with their theory of the case. But yeah, you can, you can take a deposition of anybody in the minutes of testimony, but the state, the prosecutor decides who's in those minutes. And so that's kind of a, a constant battle that defense attorneys are kind of fighting is, and then if, and then when we take depositions, right, we now have to disclose who our witnesses are going to be. And so there is some, some, some defense attorneys out there who won't take a deposition because they don't want to, um, that's part of their strategy. And, uh, and it may be in certain cases you shouldn't, if your if your issue is an eyewitness, um, identification, maybe you don't want your a defendant, your client to be there. Uh, those are all, <laughs> but they, they cause problems for us, especially on post-conviction, because you have uh, deposition testimony, but you might not have the reports. And then in post-conviction, it's civil rules, so I should get the reports, but yet did, did they not have access to them? It before sounds like you need a law change. It sounds like you need a law change and you got a friendly lieutenant governor there, but I'm confused. So you say, how do they, how do they comply with Brady? How do they comply? If they're not going to hand you something, how do they comply? Uh, so the county attorneys will say, well, uh, you, you have, um, we gave you the minutes and um, you deposed the people. So you got to ask your questions and you were on notice. And so then it was, it was on you to, um, to find out what else you needed to know. Sounds like a lot of wasted money, time, <laughs> legal resources. You might have 20 people to depose. Who's got the time and the money for that, especially if you're a public defender or a court appointed attorney. Yeah. And, you know, uh, speedy trial, you know, before pre-COVID, right? So, uh, you know, I, I've helped out on a couple of cases in Iowa that are not post-conviction because they involve a forensic science uh, like arson fire investigation, where I have a lot of experience. And that's one advantage to having me be within the public defender's office is that I can work really closely with the trial attorneys and um, help them find the right experts, try to prevent wrongful convictions, which I feel is the the second part of my mission, uh, you know, I'm trying to identify, correct, remedy wrongful convictions, but also prevent them from occurring in the future. So, so what, what's the recipe for successfully doing that? I think we're still, you know, it, there's a big culture um, here of um, not shaking the boat is how I feel. Uh, and so, Every time I, I do something, it's the first time it's been done or they don't know how to respond to me because they're not they're not used to people asking for these things. Even when we've been seeking DNA testing, uh, we've been asking for discovery. We want to search. The state says they can't find it. Let us in there. We'll go look. And we've been doing that in uh, Muscatine County <laughs> on a case from 1980. And we have yet to find it, but they can't prove it was destroyed either. So that leaves us in kind of a limbo uh, because a federal claim, you know, under Arizona versus Youngblood says that, you know, if it was destroyed without that, that can violate your due process rights. So again, more issues there. <laughs> Are you talking about the 1980 case of Beeman? Yes. 
So let's, I mean, you brought it up. Let's dive into it. Um, Jeff and, and you were nice enough to send me the pleadings on this mind blowing murder case uh, from 1980. Which one of you two want to set it up uh, just to give our viewers and listeners a, a sense of, of just the basic premise of, the, of that murder case? Well, this is Erica's case. She she should set set this, this set puppy up. Go for it, Erica. Yeah. So, um, Muscatine, Iowa, uh, relatively rural, close to the Illinois border, 1980. There is a young woman, uh, Michelle, who had um, lived with her family um, a couple miles outside of the city limits of Muscatine, and in April. Uh, she had, was walking or hitchhiking from her family home to a part-time job at the Hardee's, a local fast food store uh, restaurant. And uh, her family um, reported last, you know, seeing her April 21st um, on a Monday afternoon when she was going to go into town and do some banking and some errands. And she liked to go to a local, um, uh, it was called a, the Canterbury Inn and Spa, but it's kind of kind of more like a hotel with um, a community pass to use the pool or the gym. And uh, she, her family doesn't see her again. Her mom's out of town. Um, she has a couple of other siblings that are working and, and in and out of the house. And then on Saturday afternoon, bicyclists from the University of Iowa were riding through Wildcat Den State Park um, just, out, just outside of Muscatine City limits and found they had stopped, walked down a trail looking for firewood and they found a body. And that was Michelle. Michelle was naked except for socks. She had been stabbed. She had abrasions to her neck. She had a head injury um, covering um, an eye and um, her clothing and her shoes were nearby. Uh, they didn't have any uh, leads at first. They had a um, interviewed family. Uh, the dad, her dad came down and um, identified her. There was some evidence of decompensation, uh, decomp, uh, but she, um, she didn't have a lot of community ties. She had some. And in Muscatine in 1980, there were several discos or bars, you know, music where music was played. And uh, they arrested William Beeman um, about a week after Michelle's body is found uh, and on May 8th and uh, charged him with her rape and murder. And Beeman at that time uh, had two jobs. He worked as a, dis as a DJ at uh, Baker's Front Street Disco, which uh, is a place that Michelle had been seen. Uh, and under... After interrogation and questioning and being told that he had no alibi for Monday night because his girlfriend couldn't remember what, if he came home Monday night, if he stayed with her Monday night or he stayed someplace else, uh, he gave a statement that uh, he'd seen her Monday night at a gas station, asked her to go for a ride on his motorcycle. They went out to Wildcat Den State Park. They... Um, he continues, right, telling this story about how they um, got ready to have intercourse. She changed her mind and he got mad and, and he kicked her and he, he doesn't remember killing her, but he must have. And uh, 
he he goes to trial with an attorney who had never handled a murder case before. And he's convicted and he's sentenced to life without parole. And his attorney forgot to uh, uh, file a motion to challenge that confession in a timely manner. So the court hears it, hears it but doesn't uh, he doesn't present uh, a lot of evidence uh, about the coercion. And what we learned in uh, later was that one officer sat there asking questions and another officer typed it up. But the actual statement comes across as a one-page narrative, like he was just telling his own story freeform instead of being prompted and, um, and giving answers to questions. And it wasn't videotaped or recorded? No. There's no evidence connecting him to the crime. No physical evidence. They um, they ex executed several search warrants. They took the grips off his motorcycle, the handlebar grips, no blood. This was a bloody crime. She was stabbed um, multiple, multiple times in her chest. And uh, they found semen on the vaginal swabs from her sex assault kit. But the blood type, which is all they could do in 1980, was not Mr. Beeman's blood type. And uh, nothing on his clothes uh, they had, he had several, you know, pocket knives. None of those um, had blood that matched um, the victim, Michelle. But what they did do was there was a, a knife swipe mark on her stomach, on her abdomen. And uh, a criminalist from the state lab uh, did some experiments. He had some other lab techs take their shirts off and he dipped the knife uh, from Mr. Beeman that they took from the search warrant into blood, we don't know whose blood, and then tested it on lab analysts and decided that it, it could have made the marks. Um, a, a very unique type of evidence, not necessarily saying it was uh, the same knife that made the incisions, but that it, you know, the outline of it. And the jury heard this. Yes. And, and, you know, Erica, the one piece of evidence that you haven't talked about yet that I found, I mean, I read all this and, and, Tell me if I'm if I read your brief your briefs wrong. There were seven eyewitnesses who saw the victim after the time she was reportedly killed. Yeah. So at trial in 1980, the state um, the county prosecutor sent a letter to defense counsel and said, "You might want to talk to these three people. They saw her after he killed her on Monday, April 21st." The defense talked to those people. One of them was a little wishy-washy. It kind of he he couldn't remember for sure if it was that Monday or another Monday that he'd seen her, um, you know, at the disco, you know. And the others like, oh yeah, I saw her for sure on Tuesday, and she was married to a sheriff's deputy. So the other thing that's crazy about this case is that the two witnesses that Linda Ray and Darlene Sandovan that they disclosed under Brady as being exculpatory were also hypnotized to by the law enforcement to try to get more details about one of them saw Michelle leave the spa on Monday, uh, April 21st with a man, but she, it wasn't Beeman, but the hypnotizers are trying to get more details about his car and about what he looked like. Uh, and so the other witnesses, we just found out about those uh, late 2019, right before Christmas, the uh, prosecutors turned over 800 pages of investigative reports pursuant to a court order in our action for DNA testing. Trying, we were trying to figure out what happened to this semen, the swab, right? Where, whose semen is that, right? <laughs> and we're trying to find it. And so the judge ordered discovery. 
in those 853 pages, we found all of these eyewitnesses that would have corroborated the two or three that they disclosed and saw her up until Friday and her body is found on Saturday. We also learned for the first time that there was a Boy Scout troop at Wildcat Den State Park Friday night until Saturday morning who heard a woman scream at 1 a.m. And uh, that was never, the, the trial attorneys never had any of that information available to them before they went to trial. And there was a deposit slip. The, the bank deposit slip was in her purse that she actually deposited money, went to the bank on Tuesday, but uh, they, uh, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't inventory the contents of her purse that was found um, at the park uh, because the prosecutor said at trial, it was just woman things. So the jury though did hear from two witnesses or three witnesses saying that she was alive after the date that the prosecution says she was killed. That was actually argued and presented. Right. They presented the two. Um, the didn't believe it. Right. And the yeah. other four or five witnesses definitely would have helped and definitely would have lended credence to the, those two witnesses. And it would have been harder, easier to prove a reasonable doubt, obviously. Right. That's That's been our argument uh, that this was really important corroborating evidence that the state ignored. Uh, the other thing that we learned in those 853 pages was that um, – the body was not um, kept in a cooler. So it was found Saturday afternoon, uh, but the ME didn't see it till about 8 p.m. And the autopsy was done on Sunday. And the uh, doctor who did the autopsy came, um, he wasn't local, he had to come in. And the actual ME at the scene was a family practice doctor who didn't know anything about rigor mortis, lividity, uh, time of death calculations, et cetera. And so they had this great big range estimate at trial. And then there was a DCI agent who was on the scene, one of the first ones there. And he said her limbs were all rigid, rigid, you know, like they couldn't move them. She had rigor mortis. And uh, we didn't have any support for that until we got these 800 some pages that had all the observations that the ME made that night. And in talking with Dr. Baker from um, uh, Minnesota, he testified for us that rigor mortis does not last five days. She could not have been laying out there in April uh, and still had rigor mortis from April 21st to April 26th. And that, that would support all those other timeline witnesses that said, oh yeah, I saw her at the mall on the 24th. I saw her the 25th. Um, you said that the kids heard a scream at 1 a.m. on the 25th? Into the 26th? 26th, yeah. Wow. So this is all exculpatory evidence, Brady evidence that wasn't turned over in 1980, that was recently discovered in, in 2019, voluntarily turned over. And what is the state saying now? I mean, why, why are you not, why are you still being met with roadblocks? Why is, uh, why isn't there an honest prosecutor in Iowa stepping up and saying, yeah, we screwed up. We shouldn't have given it to you. At the very least, he gets a new trial, if not time served, and let him go out his remaining years. Like, what? what is going on there? Uh, I don't know the moral answer, but the legal arguments they're making are that um, he had notice. Uh, he, he, he did those depositions. So he talked to the defect detectives about other people, you know, that someone else had seen her, that they knew about uh, Linda Ray and Darlene Sandovan, that it's all cumulative. Uh, and so it wouldn't have made a difference. 
the trial attorneys testified in our in a motion for new trial that it would have made a really big difference. It would have changed. Uh, they also didn't know that Michelle hitchhiked, which isn't a risk factor, right? Of who else she could have come in contact with, that she had a, a history of running away from home and had problems with her dad. And in those suppressed files, we found um, reports detailing the abuse that the dad, you know, would hold Michelle up against the wall by her neck, that she wasn't allowed to do certain things because she needed to be disciplined. Uh, all kinds of signs that in today's world we would recognize, right, as abuse, possible motive, and uh, not, they didn't know any of that. And the state says it's not important that his confession trumps, even if the science doesn't support the confession. We don't use that word anymore, Erica. <laughs> uh, so this is just a little bit this is the problem with the way the system is set up in iowa and in many other states to be honest with you where prosecutors once they've prosecuted someone they become determined that they're guilty of the crime and they don't ever want to find out that they made a mistake because who wants to live with the idea that they sent someone to prison for 30 years or 40 years in this case uh, that wasn't guilty of the crime. And that's that's a very, very difficult thing. And it would be a very, very difficult thing for someone to live with. The problem is it's worse to leave them in prison when a, when a society decides to imprison its people, a free society decides to imprison its people. It has to do everything in its power to ensure the people are, that it is imprisoning are guilty. And if there is anything that determines later that they're not, that needs to be given full weight and looked at and evaluated. And that's, I, I can understand why someone would have a hard time dealing with a mistake that was made in the past, but it, it's far worse to not, not address those mistakes and not correct those mistakes. Well, you know, I don't know about you guys, but um, you know, I know you're, you're, partner, you're partnering up with the Innocence Project of Iowa and the Midwest Innocence Project with Trisha and Megan and the amazing people over there. And it feels like almost every day I'm getting a notification from around this country that somebody's getting out of prison who was wrongfully convicted, right? The momentum is here. The leanings are here. The teachings are here. feels like in Iowa, uh, they're, they're, they're not there yet. Mm -hmm. So my question is, you know, with this new evidence, what have you been in front of a judge yet and showed a judge this new evidence? And what has that judge said? Yeah, so um, we started with the motion for DNA testing, which is where we found the new evidence. So then I filed a motion for new trial saying, hey, look, brand new evidence of innocence. Like, we need a new trial. The judge denied it. He um, thought it was, he agreed with the state. It was cumulative. And so we appealed and uh, that's pending. We've got our brief filed. The AG needed more time because they're overwhelmed. So we're waiting. And then uh, we filed a post-conviction relief application for Mr. Beeman, uh, making this basically the same arguments, um, adding in a few others about the destruction of the evidence for DNA testing and uh, ineffectiveness of his trial counsel. And the state has objected to that as well and said that it's too late. We should have filed it 40 years ago. Uh, you know, they, they think that um, because he challenged his conviction previously, he... Uh, he can't prove it now. It's too late. So that it's, we're, we're, we're trying on every avenue that we can for Mr. Beeman. He, um, 
tested positive for COVID a few weeks ago, but had no symptoms. And um, his mom is still in Muscatine. She is now in her 80s, but still uh, uh, steadfast and um, very supportive. And, I, you know, I don't, um, there, there are a few, one of the, the major exonerations in Iowa was a Brady violation. It was for Harrington and McGee. And they've been out for many years now. And but that case is kind of a landmark case. And this case is very similar. And the court ignored it in its ruling uh, when it denied our motion for new trial. It didn't even mention it. Have so. you been to the so the Court of Appeals hasn't ruled? Right. So fingers crossed on that. How is the makeup of your Supreme Court? I assume pretty Republican. Yes. Which is not ideal. <laughs> um, but the governor, is your governor a Republican? Yes. And the lieutenant governor is probably a Republican. Yes. But he, he seems sympathetic as he was a public defender. Well, our public defenders are appointed by the governor. Uh, so um, that's a Republican. I love Republicans. I'm not saying anything wrong with that, but they tend not to like to reverse wrongful convictions. Yes. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, when Adam started the division, you know, he also talked about how, you know, we know Iowa can't be getting it right 100% of the time. and why is that? You know, like, why is it not being discovered? And what if we, why are we wasting all this money incarcerating people for things they didn't do and letting someone else go free to commit more crimes? And why are we doing this? You why know, are we doing that? Why are so, we doing this? Sorry. It's okay. Gosh. I, have, I have kids and for some, and a dog, and for some reason they're all being quiet right now. So at least somebody's <laughs> isn't. So, you know, is, is, is the, is there something about publicity? So what I find when I'm doing some of these interviews and I'm learning about these crazy cases, and this one falls into that category is one of those crazy cases where you just, you can't be a reasonable person, in my opinion, and not scratch your head and say, this person did not get a fair shake at trial. At least give them another trial, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you don't want to let them out, I understand, but what's the harm in making sure that he's been 40 years in prison rightfully? Um, and the question is, becomes some publicity, right? And so, um, the you know, there's I become friends with people here in Michigan, and and some of their stories go back to a newspaper columnist who took interest mm -hmm. in their story and told it and got the governor, well, not the governor's attention, but got the attention of the public. And the judges um, ended up doing the right thing, and and and, and these integrity units are set up. Is there? Has this man gotten good public attention in Iowa yet? We've had a little bit of coverage. Uh, the Des Moines Register um, uh, covered, I think, the motion for new trial. The Muscatine Journal uh, follows it. They they pulled some great photos from 1980 that we hadn't seen before. Uh, you know, our judge comes from Davenport, from the Quad Cities. You know that uh, you know everything's so spread out. Uh, all of our hearings were on Zoom. Uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, so it's been a little different and it's been definitely been challenging. I don't know, um, coming from Illinois where there's lots of Innocence Project, lots of law schools and lots of investigative journalism, Iowa is a different, it's a different community. And uh, you, we only have the two law schools. We have Drake, we have University of Iowa. We are actually entering a new partnership with the Drake Law School where we're gonna have clinic students working on cases and I've had interns in the past, and so excited to have clinic students that are, um, you know, prepared with their student license and 
able to work on the post convictions because they're civil. Uh, students, attorneys aren't allowed to work on your, you know, your your murder cases. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that uh, will will bring more light to cases like Mr. Beeman's and other things that we're working on. Well, hopefully, podcasts like this will help. Um, you know, bring bring some awareness because the right person's got to hear it. The right right person's got to get mad. You know, this whole DNA um, is so important. You know, there's so many innocence clinics just focusing on DNA. The fact that they lost the DNA in this case, or they say they lost it, uh, I assume you haven't searched their evidence rooms. We have. And the crazy part is they have boxes from 1979, but not from 1980. They have no box labeled Beeman or for the victim. They have no file. They have no copies of their reports. It's just all magically disappeared and uh, they can't explain it. That is really so upsetting. The defense attorney and you just say, boy, that seems awful convenient. Right? It's like, yeah, a convenient flood, a convenient fire, a convenient losing of it. It makes no sense. Um, and you you know in your heart, based on everything you've you've I've read here, that that DNA is certainly not going to match Mr. Beeman. Right. Um, there, there. I mean, for all the reasons we've talked about, it's just it's just a tragic story. How old is Mr. Beeman these days? See, he is now six, I think. What a what a tragedy! I love that his mom's still alive, but I'd love I, I want to be notified when. He hopefully gets out, um, and, and that reunion will be sweet. Um, well, listen, to you both, thank you for all your, your fighting and all your hard work there in Iowa, and uh, good luck on the Beeman case. I'd love, Erica and Jeff, to you know keep, keep me up to date on what the uh, Court of Appeals does. Let's try to get some publicity out there to, to make sure that people are watching this. People don't want this to happen. I think I don't care if they're Democrats, Republicans. I was kind of kidding when I was saying that. I just think decent people, Iowa, Iowa people are Midwesterners like us here in Detroit, and, and they don't want people sitting behind bars for crimes they didn't commit. And I, and I think that they'd be shocked by some of these stories and some of these facts. And um, just best of luck and keep up, keep, keep fighting. Thank you so much. We'll definitely let you know. Okay. Thank, take you. Care. Thank you for watching Open Mic, talking about the Iowa State criminal defense system and this crazy Beeman case. If anybody you know is interested in these type of cases, please forward them this episode. Tell them to watch. Subscribe. There's a button around here that you could subscribe, like, comment, email us. But all in all, I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being a fan of Open Mic. We really appreciate it. Take care.